I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. So welcome, everybody, to the eighth episode of IntroVets podcast. Hello. Hello. We're going to start with some updates, just quick ones. The first update is that I have completed the book, Not Nice, that the therapist Dana Hampson recommended back on our Anxiety Castle episode, and I thought it was really helpful. It's very long, and, you know, the only thing um, that I will say is that it's written by a guy, and there are a lot of references to getting the courage to speak to beautiful women, which I thought was weird. (laughs) The whole time I was just like, why do we keep coming back to this? I'm glad I'm not the only one that noticed that because I'm not finished. Okay, you're reading it. I'm listening to it and I kept hearing that and I haven't gotten super far. Yeah. And I'm just like, what? Okay. I even search, like I even did a Google search, like what (laughs) this book plus what is the deal with talking about approaching women? And so... Uh, that's apparently a common critique of the book is like, what, you know, this, why, why is this stuff in here? And he, I guess, got his start, the author, mostly doing events and stuff tailored to men. So like men gaining confidence and things like that. And so I guess that's one of the things that that sort of focused on. Hmm. So then I was like, okay, well, in that context, it makes a little bit more sense, but That was really the only part of the book that I felt like would be very jarring and out of place. Like, we would be like, yeah, "Yeah," like, going along with normal scenarios, and then all of a sudden it would be like, boom, a super attractive lady is right there, and I'm just going to go start a conversation. And I guess it was just weird to me because I'm like, (laughs) it's just a person, so, like, just interact with them like a person? (laughs) Or in introvert land. No interactions. Yeah, don't talk to them at all. Turn around (laughs) and walk My strategy would be to... Right away. Avoid on contact completely and <laughs> Retreat. just <laughs> Retreat. stay in the corner. Don't. To home with a blanket. Right. I've never, I just, that must be a uniquely guy thing, I think, because I've never in my life been like, oh my gosh, there's the hottest guy. How would I ever say something to him? I'm just like, sup? I mean, I have that. Like, if I don't get it. If it's like a... um I mean, I, I'm usually like anybody that I don't know when I meet them for the first time, I'm inti- immediately intimidated. I'm just like, they have some sort of like leg up on something that I don't. But, but especially the more based? attractive they okay. are, it's worse. Like okay. I might feel more comfortable talking to somebody if I'm like, okay, this person looks like a real person. So, <laughs> you know, if they this say something, I might say something back. To. But for some, I guess because I mean, you know, being a kid in the eighties, growing up with all the movies that I saw, like all the 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 super good looking popular people were always assholes. So I just assumed that that's the case, and I'm just like, okay. Plus, I mean, my high school it was kind of that way. The um, big joke to do every year was for the popular guys to pick on some girl in homeroom that they didn't like or whatever, or thought that was other. And nominate mm. them from home for homecoming queen, because oh, if you're nominated, yeah, if you're nominated, you have to go through the process for being selected by the class. So then, you, of course, you would fall low on the selection poll, 
and been kind of humiliated. And I was always petrified that was going to happen. So I tried to make myself as invisible as possible. And from what I can tell, I did a pretty good job because I think there's probably only 15 to 20 people I went to high school with that actually know who I am. So good job, me. Well, okay. So, all right. So it might be that it's that it's a major concern f- for other people. So that might be, to me, just listening to the book, every time it would come up, it would be distractingly out of place is mm-hmm. how it seemed to me. But it might not seem that way to other people. It seemed out of place in that book to me. Okay, it did. Yeah. I, I just, that. so that's my only critique was like, what? <laughs> we would <laughs> be over here in... We're going to stand up for ourselves at our job. And then all of a sudden it would be like, talk to that hot lady at the bar. And I'm like, (laughs) what? (laughs) I don't, I don't think of those two things as connected at all. I've, I guess I feel like my personal life and professional are separate and I'm almost separate. I'm almost different personalities in professional life versus personal life. I wonder if that's the man thing though, because it seems like a lot of men, I think, equate to their job to their confidence oh maybe maybe. i don't know i don't know ben uh (laughs) what do you think about ben have you read this book i I have not read this book. oh damn it ben (laughs) ben is not involved in the book club so certainly in high school well i would say less in high school for me and more in middle school I was pretty severely bullied. Like there were sections of time where I would cry every single day after school um, because of this one group of boys that was just, I mean, ugh, mm-hmm. disgusting. But like they weren't hot for, you know, like it was not, these were not hot kids like being jerks. They actually were kind of not attractive. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, well, they just weren't on my radar of attractiveness at all. I don't know. I don't know what what about me they felt like was a good thing to target. I don't I really don't understand that at all, but for some reason there was there was like a major targeting of me. I would say mostly 7th grade for me, but like maybe 8th grade a little bit as well. But um then around that time I got on the dance team and like had lost some weight and had you know, I'm I'm not a sports superstar by any means, but I was decent at sports and stuff and so I had like, you know, that kind of a friend association or whatever on sports teams and things like that. Mm -hmm. Then I think several of them just got expelled. I mean, they were kind of just like shitty, stupid people. So that problem kind of corrected itself for me, but I've never, (laughs) I guess I've just never been like, Ooh, look how conventionally attractive that person is. I'm super nervous to talk to him. I just generally prefer not to talk to most people. (laughs) So maybe that's also what it is, (laughs) but like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Ew, anyway. people. Ew, uh, people. <laughs> Ew, a person. Okay. The other thing that we need to update is the Alabama Veterinary Technician Association is currently looking for sponsors for their fall meeting, which is occurring in October, and specifically are trying to raise funds to be able to hold that meeting virtually. And so they are right now accepting donations to try to meet that goal. So I did just want to publicize that. If you are a vendor, if you are close friends with people who are vendors, if you are a veterinarian in Alabama, please consider even a small donation to the Alabama Veterinary Technician Association so that we can try to get this meeting held virtually and keep everybody as safe as possible. 
Yes, please. Alabama is lighting up with COVID numbers, and it's not going to be better by October based on how things look here. We're Mm -hmm. recording this at the end of July right now. We're going to need to hold it virtually. So if you have even a small donation, even a little bit helps. Yes, please. Yes. JJ is going to present our case today. Our patient is a 12-year-old male domestic short hair kitty. Mm-hmm. Uh, the presenting complaint was weight loss noted about two weeks ago, and the pet feels lighter when the owner picks it up. Okay. Um, they've noticed some increased vocalizing at night. Kitty cat has been eating well. He is being free-fed a commercially available dry diet. Um, the owner isn't sure if the cat's drinking more water or using litter box more because he's in a multi-cat household. So right off the bat, when I'm hearing that presentation, I think, I bet this cat's been losing weight longer than two weeks. Mm-hmm. Just because, as we've talked about before, it takes quite a bit of weight loss for the owners to perceive weight loss. Yeah. So even though they're saying it started two weeks ago, I'm already like, mm, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, think it, I think it's <laughs> yeah. been going on longer than that. Absolutely. The other thing that sticks out to me is that the cat is potentially losing weight despite being free-fed a dry food. And um, but cats just don't lose weight on free-fed dry food. I Mm-mm. mean, they don't. Not unless they have a problem. So, yeah. A free-fed um, dry food that he is happily eating well. Yeah, there's an issue. Mm-hmm. There is an issue. Okay. So our, our f- physical exam findings, um, Kitty is a BCS of five, but there is the appearance of recent weight loss. So okay. That also is a clue to probably weight loss over a period of time. Yeah. Um, and let's talk about real quick what that might look like. So mm-hmm. for me, the appearance of recent weight loss is kind of like a saggy skin appearance, mm-hmm. like especially over the shoulders and around the the lower abdomen, kind of where that uh, no- cats normally have a primordial pouch down in the inguinal area. Mm-hmm. But cats that have lost a lot of weight will have lots of extra skin down there, especially if they lost it quickly. Mm-hmm. And then I look at their little face. Mm-hmm. Um, a kitty cat who is having really severe weight loss will get almost like an alien head appearance. They'll have those really <laughs> sunken cheekbones. Mm-hmm. Um and not have a fat, chubby face anymore. They'll have like really, really prominent cheekbones, almost like they're sucking their cheeks in and making a fish face, mm-hmm. you know, if they were a person. So they those are the things I look for. Alien head and the swingies. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So um, other findings was a uh, grade two systolic murmur. Uh, it was noted over the left parasternal region. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a palpable thyroid slip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Grade two dental calculus, and yeah. the kitty cat eats treats excitedly in the exam room and growls when the treats are taken away. <laughs> Just like me. Uh, same here. <laughs> <laughs> Do not take away my snacks. <laughs> so yeah, so palpable thyroid slip. Um, not completely confirmatory for a thyroid issue but certainly raises the suspicion there mm-hmm. and then the fact that he's got a heart murmur also makes me be a little bit like mm, mm-hmm. what and then uh the eating treats excitedly for me and we talked about this with the the diabetic cat case that we had too but i i think that the exam room treat test is valid i mean it's mm-hmm. not diagnostic but 
if I offer a cat treats in the exam room and they are like, holy crap, give me the treats, shove them in my face, you know, mm-hmm. like that, that cat has an abnormally high appetite. <laughs> yeah. Because even my most um, fat cats that I have, the treat loving cats here, when I take them into the clinic, they may eat one or like sniff and lick it and then be like, I don't want it. The cats that like dive across the exam table to eat the snacks. Mm, that, <laughs> to me, a lot of the time, that's an that's an abnormally elevated appetite. Mm-hmm. So let's build our differential list, JJ. Mm-hmm. I think there's one kind of right off the bat that we need to put on the list. Absolutely. Yep. That what would is be that? hyperthyroidism. I agree. I think that's definitely top of the list here. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other things it could be. Yep. So diabetes mellitus, so sugar diabetes in cats mm-hmm. would have similar symptoms. Yep. Um, potentially renal disease mm-hmm. and potentially GI disease could also create these sorts of symptoms. And for me, anytime I have a kitty cat who is stable, you know, not having any major symptoms at home, but is losing weight, um, those are kind of my big four. Mm -hmm. hyperthyroidism, diabetes, renal disease, and GI disease. And in that umbrella of GI disease will count, you know, kind of cancer hiding someplace, kind of in there. Yep. So we need to select some tests based on those differentials. So we've got several things we need to rule out. So I say let's start with a complete blood count or a CBC, a full chemistry profile, and a total T4, uh, which is a total thyroxine level. So the test results, uh, the CBCs showed no significant abnormalities. Chemistry profile showed a mildly elevated alanine transferase, which is your ALT. Okay. The total T4 was elevated at 7.5. Ooh, JJ. Guess what? Yes, we have diagnosed hyperthyroidism. Mm-hmm. And I know that seemed pretty easy. Like everybody that's listening that is kind of seasoned in the field is going to be like, what? This (laughs) was the dumbest case. Like what? So in five minutes, we're done. Boom. All set. But there's a lot of important aspects of hyperthyroidism for us to think about. We kind of classically think of it as like, boom, run a T4. Boom, put it on medicine. Boom, done. But. There are a lot of things that have changed with hyperthyroid management even since, uh, even in the past 10 years since I've graduated. And um, so I think it's always good to kind of go over these types of cases so that we make sure that that quote, easy to manage thing, we're on top of what's happening. So I think that even if you felt like that was an easy one right out of the gate, you're going to get a lot out of this podcast. (laughs) Okay. First, we need to talk about what hyperthyroidism is. Hyperthyroidism is abnormally high secretion of thyroid hormone from the thyroid gland. It's the most common endocrine disorder that we see in cats, even more common than diabetes. Hmm. In kitty cats, hyperthyroidism is similar to toxic nodular goiter in humans. In cats, this is not usually caused by a cancerous condition. It can be, but that's not typical. Hmm. The vast majority of cats, so in studies between 96 and 98% of cats with hyperthyroidism, have benign hyperplasia. That means a non-cancerous thyroid nodule that is secreting too much thyroid hormone. Now, thyroid carcinoma, which is the cancerous type, can occur, but it's rare, and studies say it's between 1% and 3% of hyperthyroid cats. Uh, It is important to note, though, 
that if hyperthyroidism goes untreated or undetected for a long time, the chances of it turning into a carcinoma do increase. So it's not like it's either benign or cancerous long term. The benign form can turn into cancer over time, which I didn't know actually until I was researching for this podcast. Hmm. So interesting. Or I'll say, don't remember. (laughs) You know how it is. Yes. I mean, at some point I was probably taught that, but it's hard to retain all of those things. So Indeed. Sometimes functionally ectopic tissue is present. So that means ectopic tissue, uh, meaning thyroid tissue that is not in the thyroid gland. It's growing someplace else accidentally. And that can uh, be part of what's over-secreting the hormone. So, (laughs) JJ. What are the clinical signs of hyperthyroidism in cats? Well, it is quite the list. Um, okay. The things that you normally uh, associate it with, of course, are the weight loss and increased appetite. Um, but you can also get things like hyperexcitability and or agitation. Uh, so you might have a, a hangry sort of cat. <laughs> Maybe. Or a cat that gets the zoomies. Yeah. When they haven't been for a while. Yeah. Um, might notice the increased vocalization. And as mm-hmm. we saw with our case, sometimes it's in the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, this and one, sometimes, oh, go ahead. This one I kind of remember noticing a lot, um, but I didn't see it on a whole lot of lists, was the unkempt hair coat. And they kind of look a little, a little like they don't really care about grooming. They look janky. Yeah, they just like they can't be bothered. Haircut's yeah. kind of patchy and mm-hmm. and icky looking, just like. It's not smooth at all. It's dull, dry yep. looking, might be a little clumpy, mm-hmm. looking like they spent some time outdoors getting in fights or something. Yeah. And those types of behavior changes are really um, important because cats are so good at disguising when something is wrong that sometimes that'll be the only symptoms that the owner has actually noticed. Mm-hmm. Many owners don't perceive weight loss until it's super bad, but a lot of the hyperthyroid cats that I've diagnosed has either been accidentally on wellness lab work (laughs) or um you know they come in for an exam and like in the anesthesia um uh, lab work uh episode that we were talking about that kitty cat uh, that we were mentioning accidentally was diagnosed when he presented for a routine surgical procedure you know Mm -hmm. and had lost a bunch of weight but when an owner says hey um my cat is behaving differently we always need to keep hyperthyroidism on the list um, that's mm-hmm. super important. Absolutely. So what else might we see? Um, polyuria, polydipsia, which means increased thirst and increased urination. Mm-hmm. Um, a palpable enlargement of the thyroid gland. Also called a thyroid slip. Uh-huh. And I'll say right off the bat, I cannot detect these in cats. <laughs> well, I mean, unless the nodule is really big. And I spend a lot of time palpating catnicks, and I am just not good at it. I know... Um, there are studies that show that the vast majority of cats with hyperthyroidism have a palpable slip. That has just not been my clinical experience. So I think it's operator dependent. Um, and this is despite me actively trying to get much better <laughs> at palpating them. And I just, so I never palpate a neck and be like, well, it's not thyroid <laughs> disease. You know, oh, I'm yeah. like, why don't we get a T4? <laughs> so anyway, what I'm trying to say is... <laughs> If you have trouble palpating thyroid nodules, you're not alone, and it's okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, there's also um, GI signs that can, can include vomiting, diarrhea, 
an increased stool volume, which I remember when I was looking at this, I was wondering why increased stool volume? And I guess because they're eating more? Uh, I, I think that's a great guess. Um, and I'll say I don't know 100% why. So it, I think increased food intake is, to me, the logical explanation for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the thyroid controls so many things in the body. Mm-hmm. We know about a lot of them. There are way more things that we don't know about. Like there are thyroid hormones, the thyroid gland secretes that we don't know what they do. Like, <laughs> so, so I don't know for sure. And I don't know that we know, like, we're going to get down a little bit later to like, why is the ALT elevated and things like that? Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> the more that I research about hyperthyroidism, the more that I find out, like, there's just so much that we don't know about it, mm-hmm. especially for it to be like a meh, easy you know, like a uh, bank shot type diagnosis, you know, like. Uh, so anyway, I, I don't know why, um, but. Uh, yeah. Apparently it happens. <laughs> yeah, it happens. As far as the GI signs, many of the symptoms of hyperthyroidism just simply have to do with the increased level of active thyroid hormone in the body. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to this a little bit later, but it creates sympathetic um, nervous stimulation to all of the organs that react to thyroid uh, hormone, which is like all of the organs. <laughs> um, and so probably that has something to do with it as well. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, there's also cardiovascular signs, which include yep. tachycardia, uh, increase in heart rate, uh, systolic murmurs, which we had with our case. Um Tachypnea, increased respiratory rates, dyspnea, difficulty breathing, cardiomegaly, and congestive heart failure. Cardiomegaly means an enlarged heart, and congestive heart failure is congestive heart failure. Yeah, congestive heart failure occurs when um, the heart function is so reduced that fluid starts to build up in the lungs. No bueno. Yep, bad sign. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, rarely a hypothyroid cat might exhibit an uh, apathetic sign such as anorexia, lethargy, and depression. So those are kind of sometimes thought of, I guess, as like the anti-symptoms of the mm-hmm. hyperthyroid cat, but sometimes they do. Um, but still, even with those, weight loss remains a common sign in these cats. Yeah. You can't ever say it's not a thyroid condition in a cat. Who's anorexic Mm-mm. or lethargic? Not all of them read the book. Um, and I've seen, especially cats that are very progressed with their disease that haven't, for whatever reason, it's not been detected. I've seen those cats look really rough, you know, mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. everything in it. So you can't just, you can't rule out thyroid disease. Run, run that T4, run that T4. It ain't over to the blood work results are in. That's true. <laughs> Okay. So uh, one of the articles that I have found was from the American Association of Feline Practitioners. And uh, they state that the classic presentation for a hyperthyroid cat is a patient that is greater than eight years of age, is active, has a good appetite, and demonstrates some weight loss. The owner may also notice some degree of polyuria indicated by the need to clean the litter box more often, uh, which is fun. Uh, behavioral patterns such as drinking from a dripping faucet or from drip containers used for indoor plants may suggest the cat is thirsty. Uh, during the examination, owners of a hyperthyroid cat will often make the comments such as, I think my cat is senile. My cat is starving all the time. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> heard that one. Uh, My cats are starving all the time anyway, but, but no, but for real, though, they will. They will say that. Food. Uh, my cat feels great and is acting like a kitten again. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> I can't believe this cat is 16 years old. Uh, my cat is losing weight because it is so much more active. No, that's not, <laughs> not the case. Let's just pause for a second. Uh-uh. Yeah. No. Nope. No. Just like in people, okay, exercise does not contribute that much to weight loss. <laughs> Okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, the last one is the diet is finally working. <laughs> oh man, that's diets my... don't just start working randomly for no reason mm-hmm. once you've been on it. <laughs> no, doesn't yeah, work that I mean, way. So, just in the past week, it's weird. I've seen multiple pets, both cats and dogs, where um, they've come in for routine exams, and I've weighed them, and it's like the dog, the one dog was like um down 11 pounds in four months and it's Dang. an elderly you know uh large breed dog and i was like uh <laughs> time for some diagnostics like, we've been doing such a good job with the the feeding and i was like about that <laughs> you know <laughs> and i could not i could not convince the them in this particular case that there could be anything wrong so great job me <laughs> but um so I often tell those types of owners like this. Um, this happened to my own cat, uh, El Jorge, um, the killer George <laughs> was. Uh, he's passed away now of a completely unrelated issue, but he was at his prime a whopper. He was twenty one and a half pound wow. chonky chonk chonk, and um, <laughs> <laughs> and George um, George was. Uh, my ex-husband's cat and um so i kind of came in late and he was he's always a chonky boy (laughs) but then um we would um you know from time to time we would go through efforts to try to get him to lose weight okay Mm -hmm. so i remember i had switched him over to um overweight management you know i was at this point i knew george all the way through veterinary school and um, I was early in practice, probably had been only out a couple of years, and I had put him on overweight management food, and we were measuring it, okay? And I was like, man, we are doing so good with this <laughs> diet, like, so good. And I brought George in for his checkup and, and weighed him, and I was like, huh, George weighs uh, 15 pounds, you know? And my boss at the time... Um, who was a who was a really good mentor, kind of overheard me and was like, pause and like backed up a few steps, you know, and was kind of like eavesdropping. And I was like, man, I mean, I knew we were doing really well with uh, his diet and things like that. And, huh, I just didn't think it was going to be, you know, from 21 down to 15. And then he kind of like watched me out of the corner of his eye, like come full circle and be like, we need to make sure that we're checking full blood work on my cat, you know? And he, it was like, he kind of delayed, delayed, and he didn't say anything. He let me get there on my own. But once he realized, like, she's got this, then he, like, walked on. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Uh, of him just being cautiously, you know, supportive in the background, just waiting for me to get there, and then, like, walking on, like, good job, Doc. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that this is just <laughs> you doing a good job. Um, so, so then of course we got his lab work back and he, his uh, T4 was elevated and, um, we got him started on treatment, but (laughs) anyway, so it can happen to my own cat. Then it for sure happens to client cats. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. So let's talk about the pathophysiology of hyperthyroidism. Thyroxin, or T4, is the main product that's secreted by the thyroid gland. 99% of the T4 in circulation is protein-bound, so only a small percentage is actually free or active in the body. T4 that's secreted by the thyroid gland is converted to T3 in the body. T3 is the, um, the form that has effect on organs. The thyroid has a lot of functions, and we don't fully understand what all thyroid hormones actually do. Some of the things that we know about include regulation of heat production in the body, it assists in the metabolism of fats, carbs, and proteins, and thyroid hormones increase sympathetic tone, that's a part of the nervous system, um, and this has impacts on many organs. But we don't know for sure why cats develop hyperthyroidism. It, the cause is unknown. Now, it's been studied a lot, and there are things that we know affect the likelihood of developing hyperthyroidism, but there's no single um, etiology that's been described or proven. So it's probably due to a combination of factors, and some of those factors include genetics. So actually, regular old kind of, quote, mixed breed domestic short hair, domestic long hair cats are at an increased risk of hyperthyroidism compared to some of the um, compared to some of the purebred cats. So breeds that have a decreased risk include Siamese, Burmese, Persian, British shorthair, Abyssinian, and Tonkinese. Um, we don't know why, but those breeds are associated with a decreased risk. The development of hyperthyroidism has also been linked to some um, environmental factors, and one of those is exposure to flame retardants. Um, feeding can potentially contribute, so foods that contain excess iodine can potentially create hyperthyroidism in cats. In general, canned food appears to be one of the things that creates a higher risk of developing hyperthyroidism. So some studies show a two to three-fold increase um, for kitty cats that eat a canned-only diet, <laughs> and especially if it's a fish-based canned-only diet. Now, I will say, though, before everyone stampedes to take their cats off canned food, I feed all of my cats a canned-only diet, even though hyperthyroidism might be a little bit of a higher risk. The reason is that there are so many other cat issues that feeding a dry diet makes worse. <laughs> um, and so just a quick list would be cats with diabetes. They should not eat dry food. Cats with um, lower urinary tract disease uh, should not eat dry food. Okay. Um, Many people think that kitty cats with GI disease do better on a canned diet as well. So kitty cats with kidney disease, they need the extra moisture from canned food. And overall, hyperthyroidism is not a terrible condition to have. It's pretty easy to treat. So some of the things that we need to use canned food to prevent uh, are bad things to treat. So like if I had to pick between a higher risk of um, hyperthyroidism and my cat with urethral disease developing an obstruction, I'm going to pick the hyperthyroidism because that's way less expensive and invasive mm -hmm. to treat than a urethral obstruction <laughs> um, and way less life-threatening immediately, right? So for those reasons, 
I still advocate for feeding cats a canned-only diet, and I will step off my canned food soapbox now. <laughs> um, and then I saw two different studies that referenced cats using cat litter as an increased risk factor. But I'm like, <laughs> what? How? <laughs> it didn't say clay. There was no, like, specific type. It just said cats who use cat litter. And I'm thinking, like, what the heck type of cat doesn't use cat litter? <laughs> Vague party of two. Um. I mean, and I grew up with indoor-outdoor cats, and my mom had indoor-outdoor cats, like, her, you know, the whole time. They always had a litter box inside, mm -hmm. you know. In fact, um, uh, many of the times they would come inside to use the litter box and then go back outside to play, and it would make <laughs> her so mad, you know. But, um, but yeah, so, like, ha I'm just trying to think of, like, what, so, like, in barn cats, I guess, or, like, even the barn cats I know have a litter box, mm -hmm. so I don't know what we're doing here. Anyway, uh, I suppose theoretical cats that exist someplace that don't have a litter box might be at decreased risk. I don't know how practical that is, though. Weird. So, let's talk about diagnostics. Diagnosis of hyperthyroidism is based on the clinical symptoms and test results. So you never want to treat numbers. You always want to make sure that we have a kitty cat with clinical symptoms, okay? But from there, we've got a couple of things that we need to look at. The vast majority of the time, thyroid disease is very easily diagnosed. That's the great part. So in the vast majority of cats, the total T4, which is the baseline screening test that we need to be running, is elevated. And when we say elevated, we mean over five. Hmm. But Values over three and a half micrograms per deciliter are statistical outliers and they need further assessment. But for sure, if we're above five, that cat has hyperthyroidism. No need for additional testing. Okay. <laughs> if you've got a cat who's in the right um, age range and has been losing weight and having even mild symptoms, if you test that cat and it's T4 is five and a half, that cat has got hyperthyroidism and needs to be treated in, in some way, which we'll get to in a minute. An elevated total T4 is diagnostic, period, end of story. We can stop there the vast majority of the time, okay? Now, total T4 can be, quote, falsely normal if we have a kitty cat that has not had hyperthyroidism a long time. So there's no, like, positive or negative test, right? It's a range. So if the cat is early in the course of the disease, we might not have a robustly elevated T4. Additionally, cats who have hyperthyroidism, but also other illnesses, can present with a normal T4. So concurrent non-thyroid illness. So say we had a cat who has cancer hiding somewhere in the body and also happens to be hyperthyroid. We might miss the hyperthyroidism because the presence of the cancer is artificially lowering the T4 value. Concurrent illnesses suppress T4 by changing protein bonding and thyroid metabolism. So something for us to watch out for. About 10% of hyperthyroid cats will have a normal T4. That means 90% of them have an abnormal one. So this is a great test. This is a great test. Now, the total thyroid concentration continues to increase as the disease progresses. So if you are really early in the course of the disease and we're sitting at like a four and a half, sometimes if we wait just a little bit, now we might be at a seven, you know? Hmm. Um, so it does go up over time. 
If we test a cat and the total T4 value shows very high levels, we need to consider that this cat might be one of those rare guys with a thyroid carcinoma. Um, and when I say very high levels, I've seen guy my guys with thyroid carcinoma. I've had one who was up in the 20s. Um, mm-hmm. We had to send that one out for dilution to get the actual number. Um, and I've seen a cat with um, uh, thyroid carcinoma whose levels were like in the 15s. Um, so I think of those types of numbers. I could not find a specific reference that said anything like cats with thyroid readings over X amount have a higher chance, but just generally, if they're very high levels, there's going to be a higher risk of thyroid carcinoma. If you have a kitty cat in the right age range, that's seven, uh, seven plus years old generally, and you have a cat that has higher than three and a half micrograms per deciliter total T4, We need to work this cat up and make sure it doesn't have thyroid disease. So the next test that we need to talk about is free T4 by equilibrium dialysis. Now, this type of test, it it can't be done in-house. Usually it has to be sent to an outside lab. It's useful if we have a cat that's suspected of having hyperthyroidism, but we have a normal total T4. So again, if you have a high total T4, you're done. You don't have to (laughs) run a free T4. That's just the total T4 being high as diagnostic. But if you've got kind of an iffy total T4, then running a free T4 might be helpful. Uh, But it's also not a perfect test. Um, The free T4 is less affected by non-thyroidal factors, but we can still see the free T4 be elevated even if the cat's not hyperthyroid. (laughs) So it's not a perfect test either. Sick euthyroid cats... That means cats with other illnesses that are sick but have a normal thyroid, don't have hyperthyroidism, can have a falsely elevated free T4. And the thing that I have seen this happen in the most is kitty cats with GI disease, but certainly it happens in other kitties. Uh, In one study, uh, 20% of cats that don't have hyperthyroidism, so euthyroid cats, who have chronic kidney disease had an elevated free T4. That's a significant number. So we always want to use the free T4 in conjunction with the total T4. You would never want to run a free T4 and call it a day. You you need total T4 is the screening test. Free T4 can help confirm kind of iffy results, but never run a free T4 just by itself. There's a third test that we need to talk about. We're only going to mention it briefly, though, because it's not used very commonly. I'm going to say I don't remember ever hearing of this type of test until I started researching for this episode. (laughs) That's how often it's not performed. So the T3 suppression test is used in kitty cats who we think have hyperthyroidism, but they actually have a normal total T4 and a normal free T4. Now, other types of things that we want to look at when we are uh, checking these kitty cats out. We mentioned earlier that This cat in the example had an elevated ALT or alanine transferase. Now that's a liver enzyme. And this is important. We're going to kind of slide this in here. If you are seeing a kitty cat with weight loss and maybe you're at a clinic that can't run a total T4 in-house or maybe you forget. I mean, it happens, okay? Like you get busy and you're just not thinking about it. Maybe it's kind of still a young cat and you're like, it's probably not a thyroid issue. If you see a kitty cat with an elevated ALT or ALP, uh, elevated liver enzymes, check that cat for hyperthyroidism because more than 90% of hyperthyroid cats have an elevation in either ALT or ALP. And in kitty cats, having 
an elevated liver enzyme, it's never a no big deal thing. It's always significant. So in dogs, we see kind of a lot of like, meh, it's an elevated alkaline phosphatase, no big deal. We see that all the time, especially if it's mild, but that's not the case in kitties. If you see elevated liver enzymes in a cat, work that cat up (laughs) for sure. And the things you need to be looking for are GI disease and hyperthyroidism. So don't forget, we don't know why the liver enzymes go up. Uh, There's a proposed mechanism based on what happens in rats with hyperthyroidism, but this isn't for sure proven in in cats. But in rats, what happens is um, that there's increased apoptosis. That just means programmed cell death, cell explode um, (laughs) of the liver cells due to toxic effects of T3. That's that active form of thyroid hormone. I do just want to mention that the AAFP 2016 Guidelines for Hyperthyroidism Management in Cats has a great summary about the six groups that they can fall into when we're suspicious of hyperthyroidism and how to manage testing and treatment of those groups. We're going to come back and do our mini episode. Our snack episode next week is going to feature this information, so be sure to look out for that. But if you want to get a jump start on it, go take a look at the AAFP Guidelines for Hyperthyroidism and start to read about it. JJ, yeah. how do we treat hyperthyroidism in cats? Well, we have a couple of different ways. One being methimazole. It's a, a tablet that you can give. It can also be compounded into a transdermal gel that can be applied to the inner portion of the pinna. Yeah. Um, those are uh, super handy if you have a spicy burrito or a kitty that's difficult to medicate. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> you like the yeah. spicy freedom. <laughs> we should, uh, okay, this is an aside, but we should, at one point, we've got to talk about the chili pepper rating system. Yes. For cats. I brought it up at work the other day, and they were all like, you need to make a scale. We need this. Like an infograph? <laughs> yes. Like, you know, a picture of the levels of the unhappiness of the burrito uh, yes. and a chili pepper rating system. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So we will, uh, that'll be our secondary topic in the snack episode <laughs> is if you want to hear more about the chili pepper rating system for cat, what what we call it? Spicy the, burrito chili pepper rating system. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. The, it's a rating of the fractiousness of cats from one to five on a chili pepper scale. Kind of like the, what's the scale that they, um, that they register peppers on? The um, Koval scale, is that what it's called? Uh, it is the Scoville. Scoville. Okay. Yeah. So, like, think of it as a Scoville scale yes. for cats. Yeah. Based on the amount of spicy attitude that they have. <laughs> and it goes from one to five. Um, and well, so we can talk about that. But, yeah, your, your cats with the home chili pepper scale in the three to five range do not do well with oral medicine. Mm-mm. And my favy fave thing is to put those cats on transdermal methamazole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure oh, yeah. the owners appreciate that too, because oh, yeah. they don't draw back nubs. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so, methamazole can be used as the sole treatment, or it can also be used as a short term stabilizer uh, before doing surgery, anesthesia, or the I131, which we'll go into more detail about that treatment in a bit. Yeah. I think it's normally just called I131. I131. Mm-hmm. I131. Or radioiodine therapy. Yeah. And that's important. We're going to talk about this a little bit further down, but um, most of the time we do start with methimazole no matter what, because we want to see 
how does regulating the thyroid hormones in the body, um, like how does the kitty respond to that? Do we see any other issues develop mm-hmm. after we regulate the yeah. thyroid hormone? When it's used as a, a trial, it can um, predict the risk for renal compromise after definitive therapy. So you got could be hiding some kidney disease and you fix the thyroid right. and all of a sudden the kidney's like, hello, I'm an asshole too. Right. Yeah. Because this cat like collect. to just, yeah, they stuff those little diseases right in their little fat pouch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure do. Got them in those swingies. Methimosol acts by blocking thyroid peroxidase, which inhibits biosynthesis of thyroid hormones. Using it twice a day can decrease side effects, but, um, some cases, once the cat is uh, euthyroid, giving the total 12-hour dose every 24 hours can help with owner compliance. Although, when I was talking uh, about this with Dr. G earlier, she said she hadn't really had a whole lot of luck with that, that the cats usually end up going back to being hyperthyroid if you do it once a day versus twice a day. That's been my experience. You know, sometimes you'll read about uh, certain treatment options and then just in your hands, it just seems like it never goes well, even though you can't you know, produce study results. What I'll say is in my hands, once a day therapy, I, I've not seen those cats thrive the way that they do on twice a day medicine. Mm. Um, so that that's just my professional bias. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah. Uh, typically, we'll check a T4 um, two to three weeks after starting the methimazole to make adjust and make adjustments as needed. And that's going to be a total T4 that we're checking. Yes. So we want to monitor kitty cats based on the total T4. That's super important. Mm -hmm. Side effects are rare, but include liver changes. Hepatopathy. Leukopenia. That means low white blood cells. Anemia. That means low red blood cells. Thrombocytopenia. Low platelets, which are a clotting cell. GI upset. (laughs) Self-explanatory. Vomiting and diarrhea. (laughs) Lethargy. Laying around. What I'm feeling. Ain't doing right. (laughs) ADR. And uh, puritis. Itching. Mm Mm-hmm. Especially of the face. Yes. I saw some pictures. And when you see this side effect, it's not like my cat scratched one time. It's like I uh, gave the methamazole. Three days later, the face is bleeding. Yeah, like, it's it pretty is pronounced. severe. Yeah. It, you're you're going to see the side effect if you practice uh, in small animal long enough. It You're going to see this. It's very upsetting. So never forget to tell your owner that it might happen because it's the one case that you forget to mention uh. it. Then they're going to call back and be like, my cat's having this side effect. I Googled it. You sold me a dangerous medicine. But I'm not bitter about that. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Clearly, I have not been scarred by similar client interactions to what I just described. But um, but yeah, so like I am. (laughs) Bottom line, never forget to tell your owners about this side effect because (laughs) It's so scary to watch the cat tear their face up Mm -hmm. that, like, you know, anemia, you can't see. You know, hepatopathy, you can't see. The scratchy face, owners see it and they flip out. Mm -hmm. So, like, just make sure if your cat's scratching its face, discontinue the medicine and call me. If the owner knows ahead of time, you set an expectation and they're like, hey, you knew this would happen potentially. And you're like, yes. If they don't know about it, then, you know, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> so most uh, most of these side effects appear within four to six weeks of treatment and decrease after two to three months. I would say except for the facial pruritus. Like, I've never had a facial pruritus one be able to stay on methimazole. So is it just as bad with the... Uh, um, Transdermal? Yeah. Hmm. Great question. 
I don't know. I will say that I've never had one. Huh. I've never had one on transdermal methamazole have the facial pruritus. Interesting. I've only had them on oral methamazole have the pruritus. But then I was too afraid to put them on the transdermal. You know what I'm saying? So we need to, we'll have to come back to that. So we'll flag that as an update. If any of you guys that are listening know or have had a cat that miraculously got better with the facial pruritus, let for sure let me know. I know of one cat whose owners absolutely w- would not do any other type of treatment or consider any other type of treatment. And I think that that cat stayed on uh, methamazole, but was also started on steroids long term, which is not a benign treatment, you know. Um, and I don't remember how that cat did. Hmm. So anyway, if anyone is listening to this and knows the answer to that question of does the pruritus go down over time? It, I mean, the cats I've seen it in is so severe, there would be nothing to do except stop it. Yeah. I mean, it's like bloody face. Pretty bad. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so let me know. Let JJ know. Yeah, I'm curious. Okay. Okay. So most hyperthyroid cats respond well to long-term treatment with methamazole, but because it does not destroy hyperplastic tissue... Some cats may have to have their dose increased over time. Yep. And eventually the dose may become too high to be tolerated or the cat can become resistant. Um, in this case, another method of treatment would need to be uh, considered. Yeah. And I, I luckily haven't had that happen very often. I, so in 12 yeah. years of practice, I can think of a single case that became refractory to methamazole and that cat ended up having a carcinoma, hmm. was treated uh, with I-131, which you're going to get to in here in a minute, and, and then did well after that. Yeah. So. Um, a, uh, another drug that's kind of the uh, same family of methamazole is carbimazole. Um, it's not available in the U.S. or North America for that fact. Um, it's used widely in Australia and the U.K. Uh, it's immediately converted into methamazole after administration. And side effects are similar to methamazole, but are less frequent and less severe. So, which is interesting. Why we got that? I don't know why. So again, okay, if you're a pharmacologist and you're listening to this podcast, number one, that's exciting. Number two, <laughs> do you know why we don't have carbimazole in the U.S.? Because if there's less side effects, less severe, I don't know. It just seems like those would be good things. Well, I don't know. Why we? So anyway, why why ain't we got Nary? Yeah, why don't we have that? Please send us an email and tell us in detail. (laughs) Okay, JJ, there's one treatment of hyperthyroidism in cats that's considered to be the gold standard treatment. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that treatment. That would be your radioactive iodine, I-131. It has a 95% cure rate with a single dose. So that's probably why it's so popular. And of the remaining 5%, 2.5% may develop hypothyroidism, which is usually transient, but uh, some of them will require a supplement. Uh, It's very important that owners are educated of this possibility, especially if avoidance of medicating was the primary goal of choosing the I-131. Yeah. Yeah. So if, say, your cat, you have a cat that they just absolutely cannot medicate this cat, um, we need to just tell them, like, oh, there's a two and a half percent chance. <laughs> it's tiny, but that possible. you actually will have to still medicate your cat yeah. after this. It's not impossible. It's a small risk, mm-hmm. but there's not as it's not a zero risk scenario. Yeah, uh, the remaining and levothyroxine is not, you know, yeah. generally done transdermally. So no. we need to think about that. <laughs> 
the remaining 2.5% will remain hyperthyroid and require second dose. And those are usually, if they have some pretty advanced hyperthyroidism, um, yeah, been going on I've for a while. I've seen those be the carcinoma cases. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, it is the favorite therapy, especially in younger cats. Um, so those that are kind of closer to probably the seven year mark, mm-hmm. um, it yeah. destroys abnormal tissue and it can keep, it can treat thyroid carcinoma. Yeah. So this is, you know, if your cat has thyroid carcinoma, you need, we need to go radioactive iodine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, I've had owners pursue this therapy and been very happy with it. Um, most owners balk at the cost. But, and again, we can't talk about prices. Yep. Um, but on our cupcake scale, it's like a um, it's like a hundred cupcakes or two hundred cupcakes. Yep. You know what I'm saying? So it's a lot. Yeah. But and it's not without its like kind of uh, I wouldn't call it invasive is the right word, but more kind of strict um, home care for a couple of weeks after it's done mm-hmm. that can be kind of it. Doesn't necessarily sound super crazy, but when you're having to deal with it at home, sometimes it can be kind of inconvenient, and some people find it a little much, but super important nonetheless. Yeah, and we're going to go over that here in just a minute, I think. Yes. Um, But yeah, so a radioactive iodine, not for every kitty. It's the gold standard. Um, It's it's considered to be the, quote, best uh, treatment. Because it's a, it's a possibility for a cure, mm-hmm. um, and with no long term medicine. Um, but it you know it's okay if your owners don't want to do it. Like then use methemazole. Mm-hmm. You know, like methemazole still a great option. Um, the ones that I've had do I one thirty one have tended to be the ones that absolutely could not continue to medicate the cat or JJ as you said are younger. Um, so when I was in veterinary school, we actually saw a hyperthyroid cat who was four. That's really uncommon. Yeah, that's young. Uh, But it was a four-year-old cat with hyperthyroidism. And it was so weird that after the vet was like, this is hyperthyroid, (laughs) and sent it to the vet school because he was like, let's make sure (laughs) that this isn't something else. And we did like a full workup on that cat. It even had nuclear scintigraphy and everything, you know, and uh, it, it was hyperthyroid. And so... Um, that kitty cat uh, had I-131, and I cured for him. And back then, JJ, do you know in Alabama how long they have to be quarantined now? Once they get done with the procedure? Yeah. Uh, about two weeks is what I saw. Quarantined at the hospital? Oh, no, or at is the that hospital. At yeah. Um, hospital, they have to remain in t- in veterinary care until the radiation levels are low enough for discharge. And that's going to be dependent by state on yeah. what their requirements are, but it says it's usually five to 14 days. I should have looked up the requirements for Alabama just because um, we're very popular in Alabama, I guess, because we talk about Alabama a lot. <laughs> um, like 50% of our listenership is in Alabama. <laughs> but um, And then we have people in Australia and on all kind of places that I never imagined would listen to my <laughs> podcast, which is really awesome. We've got people in England. Uh, California, Oregon, but most everybody's in Alabama. Mm-hmm. When I was in veterinary school, again, over a decade ago, so first of all, there were much fewer places at that time to get I-131. It was like, you know, in Alabama, it was like you could go to the teaching hospital at Auburn 
or you go to Atlanta kind of a mm-hmm. thing, you know. And I remember in Atlanta, sometimes the vet school would refer people to Atlanta just because the cats didn't have to stay in isolation that long because of state law. Mm-hmm. But at the vet school, they kept them for two. I want to say, I'm pretty sure my memory is that they kept them for two weeks. Period. Yeah, I could see that yeah. Um, at the vet school. And so that was one one major reason why people didn't want to do it. But I think we'll have to again, we'll update this in the snack episode. It was I was remiss in not looking that up. That was my fault. I should have looked that up. But yeah, so there is a quarantine period at the actual clinic. And then at home, there's a special handling period. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of hassle right away. But like, man, the upshot is long term cure. Ninety five percent chance of a cure. Heck, you don't get that that pretty good. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, I try to think of diseases where that's the case. No, yeah. not many. And I, so I chose uh, methimazole from, for uh, El Jorge, the wonder cat, <laughs> um, because he was already of advanced age and had other problems going on mm-hmm. when he was diagnosed with hyperthyroidism. Um, and just, I mean, honestly, he took that medicine like a champ. He was... <laughs> As grumpy as that cat was about everything else, he loved food and he loved pill pockets. So there was not a day in his life that that cat was not like, meow, I'm ready for my pill pocket right now. <laughs> you know, like he loved his medicine. Um, so it was just super easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and after his hyperthyroidism diagnosis, he did develop a nasal lymphoma about three years after that. So like, you know... I mean, I hate to say it, but financially, that was actually probably a pretty good decision because, you know, it was, methamazole was so cheap. Yeah. It's so inexpensive. Uh, but anyway. Hmm. So it's not wrong. If your client doesn't want to go with I-131, that's okay. Yep. There are other things that we can do. No problem. Mm-hmm. But it is the gold standard because it could potentially cure them. It's definitely easier to find a place that does it now than it used to be. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I feel like it's not done as often. I always offer it. Yeah. I always offer it. But uh, the vast majority of people, when we get to the cost part, mm-hmm. are like, that's a no yeah. for me. Which, I mean, that's understandable. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's more than a mortgage payment. You know, it's, yeah. it's expensive. Um, It's expensive. But, yep. you know, for the right owner, right cat, might be might be worth it. Might be a good thing. Yeah. So, uh, once you are able to take the patient home, uh, the owners will have a couple of instructions to follow for the next couple of weeks for their own protection no direct contact with the cat for more than 15 minutes a day that would be the hard one for me because yeah i enjoy my kitty snuggles and my, it's gonna they be, would have to just continue to quarantine it at the place yeah it's like don't because there's no chance i mean can you imagine me being like <laughs> no. not um no <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the kitty cannot have contact with anyone who is pregnant, attempting to become pregnant, or is less than 12 years of age. Hmm. Yeah, so if you've got young kids in the house... Uh, Anybody with rapidly reproducing cells? No. Yeah. It's hard to talk to kids about that, too. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So... Yep. Okay. No, no. Cat may not sleep with the owner. Cat may what? not sleep with the owner or anyone else. For that matter. <laughs> or anyone else. <laughs> yeah, as if you're, like, immune to the radiation if you're uh, not the owner. Exactly. <laughs> uh, kitty must remain indoors, so no going outside. Um, and you must wear gloves to uh, handle urine, feces. Um, if your cat's a drooler, then 
you know, handle with care. Mm. <laughs> and litter boxes should have a plastic liner so that you can easily remove the litter when cleaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's usually the instructions they have to follow. So it's and it's usually for they said about at least two weeks. Yeah, and uh, then usually you can go back to status quo. But yeah, so like worst case scenario, we're talking about a month of beha- of major changes mm-hmm. to the cat's lifestyle, like. If the cat is one of the outliers and has to stay for the full 14 days and then goes home and we got 14 days of minimal handling, some cats might not do well with that. Mm-hmm. But many of them would. Yeah. I think that the owners emotionally might yeah. not do well. And that. I think that's, you know, that that's harder. It's a way harder pill for people to swallow than that is cats. Yeah. That we might have to set like set up an owner support group yeah. for this. Like, seriously. <laughs> You may not struggle snuggle your cat recovering no. from I-131. No, do not do that. <laughs> so. so after the treatment, um, uh, the T4 is usually back in the normal range four to 12 weeks after. Um, clinical signs can take up to several months to resolve, however. Older cats or cats that are collecting diseases are not considered to be good candidates for the I-131. Yeah. So there is one surgical option that used to be kind of popular mm-hmm. but now you don't you hardly ever see this option jj which one is that that is thyroidectomy and yeah. i worked at a clinic where they had two surgeons that uh, were considered pretty proficient in the surgery we even had cats coming from different parts of the state for them to do the surgery that's interesting and uh, i mean it was it was really commonly done i'd say we probably for like the last two years I was there, we probably had one every couple of weeks that they were doing. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. What uh, decade was that? That <laughs> thanks. Uh, <laughs> that would have been uh, the nineties, mid no, uh, mid no. early to mid two thousands. I was there okay. from like two thousand and one to two thousand and six. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. So there are reasons why surgery is not the preferred method. So let's talk about them. A little bit about the surgery first. It can be done bilaterally, uh, which means both lobes, uh, or unilaterally in patients with true unilateral disease, or staged bilaterally, which means they would just remove one lobe and then come back and remove the other. Um, Ideally, the parathyroid gland is left preserved to prevent or reduce hypocalcemia. So I do remember when they were doing the surgery, there was this tiny, tiny little thing. That they would, like, set aside and be like, do not lose this. Don't lose it. <laughs> so other complications from the surgery include Horner syndrome, laryngeal nerve paralysis, development of hypothyroidism, and reoccurrence of hyperthyroidism. Yeah. That one probably be in yeah. the pretty common one. Yeah. So let's talk about those for just a second. Mm-hmm. So Horner syndrome is a complex of neurological signs including a sunken eye, a small pupil, droopy lid, um, and laryngeal nerve paralysis would create problems with the laryngeal cartilages moving correctly, which can create some upper airway symptoms in cats. Um, Certainly, if we're developing low thyroid, as we talked about with the I-131 therapy, then now we're back to giving medicine every day. Mm -hmm. And then... Certainly, hyperthyroidism can reoccur. Yep. And when we talked a moment ago about that it can be done bilaterally or unilaterally, 
If you're going to do it unilaterally, you really need nuclear scintigraphy. So then you're looking at going to a teaching institution to get nuclear scintigraphy. By the time you invest those dollars, you might as well just do I-131 therapy Mm -hmm. at that point. So I think, you know, certainly financial is not the only aspect of this that, you know, that's creating a problem, but it, it's one in addition to to these bad symptoms that we can have potentially that kind of have contributed to this not being a common method anymore. Yep. So uh, is that what they were referring to as imaging? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I'll leave that part out because you kind of went over with that. Um, so uh, surgery can be difficult in cats with substantial hyperthyroidism. Uh, I think they would uh, stand to be more likely to miss some of the lobe they're trying to remove. And I remember reading, there was talking about there was some tissue that can sometimes be hidden and it can be hard to see and it gets missed mm-hmm. a lot. Plus the ectopic tissue. And I mean, it can grow in really wacky places mm-hmm. sometimes. So if you're doing nuclear scintigraphy and you're seeing ectopic tissue, then, you know, removing the thyroid gland might not fix that long term because the ectopic tissue is still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 90% of cats reach euthyroidism, but 5% of those will experience a relapse within three years. And that's just three years. It could be more even further down the road. Um, results depend highly on the surgeon's skills and the stabilization of the patient prior to surgery. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm with you. I, if if you're going to have the surgery, the yeah. in order to get a good result, I feel like you would have to invest in, you know, a very skilled surgeon at a teaching yeah. hospital. And at that point, you might as well just do the I-131. Because um, even the most skilled well, think, surgeons can miss tissue that can cause transient or reoccurring hyperthyroidism. I mean, I think even in a private practice setting, the cost has to approach I-131 therapy mm-hmm. with a lower success rate and more complications. Yep. So I, it would, yeah, it's just, it's not done very often for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so there's one more type of treatment that we need to talk about. And that is diet. Yeah. So the school of thought is, uh, since the only known function of iodine, <laughs> did I say function? Yes. <laughs> we have an episode uh, title. Function. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't know. We'll have to talk. I about took it. the Can fun and put the fucking episode? function. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Everyone is turning the podcast off right and now. And I'm not even drunk. Okay. <laughs> the- hey, no one here is drunk. No one. Function. No, why not? <laughs> the only known function of iodine is for the... Quit laughing at me. <laughs> what the function? I'm sorry. Uh, I'm talking normal. The only known function of iodine is for thyroid hormone synthesis. Therefore, feeding a low iodine diet can be used to treat hyperthyroidism. In theory, and Hill Science Diet YD is the only diet available. What is the Y in yeah. YD? Do you know? I don't have any idea. There are some limiting factors. Uh, apparently, it tastes like crap. <laughs> it says lack of palatability, difficulty in feeding strict diets in multi-cat households. That's probably the number one uh, problem owners have. Cats collecting diseases and in need of other prescription diets containing iodine. So if they need, say, your uh, kidney diet or um, 
a special GI diet and those diets contain iodine, then they can't, we'd rather, you know, treat your hyperthyroid with something other than diet in those cases. Uh, cats taking compounded flavored medications containing iodine. That's a problem. And then there's the cats that go outside. You can't really contain, you can't really, uh, prevent them from eating other things when they go out, outside. Yeah, I have not used YD. Actually, I can't think of a single time ever. <laughs> now, I always present it as an option. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, usually by the time we get to the part about like, okay, this is the only thing your cat can ever eat from now on, period. People are like, <laughs> no, that's not going to, we're not going to do that. Not going to fly. I mean, even my own cats, that'd be completely impossible. And now I was reading a study that showed like, so apparently normal cats have been proven to be able to eat YD long term. uh, And the study went out like two years and it showed no negative effects. Mm -hmm. So like, I think technically they say like, yeah, you can feed it to every cat in the household. But number one, we don't have lifelong studies about it. So like, really, is that okay? I, I would be a little nervous about it. And number two, even if all the cats like it, and then I was going to feed all four of my cats that, then that quadruples your budget, right, for food. Um, That that would be hard for me to justify, especially when there are, again, other options. But maybe I'm biased just because I can medicate (laughs) cats really easily because I'm a veterinarian. I don't know. But anyway... um, I have not had an owner ever go for this treatment before. So I can't really relate any personal experience with, with feeding it. JJ, have you experienced clients that have yeah, fed it before? Um, uh, where I used to work, when it first came out, they were kind of uh, um, offering it quite a bit. And we saw, you know, most of them either had trouble because they had multi-cat household or they just, you know, it's really easy to not know that you've dropped food in the floor and cats are going to eat what they're going to eat. Um, but we also just didn't really see uh, a lot of, I guess, luck with it because they would still, it might reduce the thyroid level, but never got them into that good happy range. It would be a little above oh, yeah. it. So they didn't get really good resolution with it. Um, and they were kind of like, you know, even if I have to have a give pill, it's way cheaper than feeding this expensive food that I'm not getting 100% good results on. Um, it's still having clinical yeah. signs. It's just kind of like I'm peeing in the wind here. So they used, would yeah. kind of, well, that first food that came out, but they had several people on it and they all came off of it within that year. I, I mean, certainly cost wise, methamazole mm-hmm. is the least expensive option, even if you're using. The, the one brand name, Philemazole, that's like, that's my favorite type to use because it's very small. It's candy coated, <laughs> you know, it's really easy to hide mm-hmm. in a pill pocket. Even though that's slightly more expensive than regular Methamazole, it's still way cheaper than yeah. YD. I mean, it is. Um, yeah. And it works better. And the vast majority of cats tolerate Methamazole. Yeah. So. And reading some of these uh, other yeah. kind of limiting. Uh, factors is like normalization of thyroid levels can take up to 180 days and some cats yeah, never reach a long time. in a one-year study 83 percent of cats reach remission that's not a i mean it's better than 50 but not yeah. as good as 90 long-term consequences of feeding a low iodine diet are unknown that's a little scary 
So somewhat positive one, uh, three studies have shown a decreased level in serum creatinine and a stabilized or increased body weight in cats on a low iodine diet. But they have no idea why this happens. Um, And uh, also they feel additional studies are needed to determine if feeding this diet affects the sensitivity of the thyroid gland to I-131 treatment. Yeah, so that could be bad. (laughs) So uh, another chart that's a good reference in um, the AAFP standards for hyperthyroidism is called the advantages and disadvantages of feline hyperthyroidism treatments. So it goes over the different treatments, advantages and disadvantages, as the title suggests. This is a great chart. Um, If you haven't looked at this chart, everybody go look at those AAFP guidelines. They're really comprehensive. This would be like an awesome Mm -hmm. owner handout. Boom. Like, I, I feel like I spend, you know, every time I diagnose hyperthyroidism, no less than 45 minutes carefully outlining each thing. Like, look at this. You just be like, boom, I'm owner. I'm emailing you or printing you. Boom, a handout. Here it is. I want you to go ahead and start reading over this because we have our diagnosis while I'm prepping, you know, your go home materials and things like that. Because we're going to be starting methamazole, you know, really no matter what. okay? unless you're just like, no, I can't medicate at all. But here's our long term, you know, information about all of our options here so that uh, as we go, you Mm -hmm. can kind of decide. Right. The good thing about hyperthyroidism is that it's not an emergent problem most of the time. So even if the owner was like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. I need three days to think about that. Okay. Like cats been hyperthyroid way longer mm-hmm. than three days, you know? So that way you get like, boom, hit them with the chart. And then you put them on the follow-up call list for three day. Owner says they need three days to think about it. Go ahead and then call them back and say like, okay, we really need to treat your cat. Like how, wh- what do we want to do? And then we can uh, give them that information. So that really would help streamline mm-hmm. visits, I think. So let's talk really quickly about the outcome of this particular mm-hmm. case. This case is a case that I personally saw, but it's been a long time ago. And to conceal the pet's identity, well, I changed some of the details uh, (laughs) about it. So, but let's talk about some of the outcomes of the case. This particular cat, from the example, was started on methimazole transdermally twice a day. He became well-managed very quickly, like within a month. And his heart murmur resolved, which we do see sometimes. Sometimes the cardiac changes from being hyperthyroid are permanent, but occasionally it will revert back to normal, especially if the cat hasn't had hyperthyroidism a mm-hmm. super long time. So his heart murmur resolved, and when he had a cardiac workup, it was normal. So that Yay. was great news. And he did very well for a mm-hmm. really long time. Yeah. So additional considerations that we kind of touched on, but we'll need to... Um, go over a little bit more in our companion episode are that hyperthyroidism can unmask kidney disease. And kidney disease is very common in older cats as well. So anytime that we are dealing with a kitty cat with hyperthyroidism, there's a potential that renal disease is existing, even if its lab work values are relatively normal. Because hyperthyroidism, one of the side effects is increased blood flow to the kidneys, And consequently, it can increase the glomerular Mm -hmm. filtration rate, and that will kind of mask the kidney disease. But then when we correct the hyperthyroidism, (laughs) then we have um, the kidney disease become unmasked and we can become clinical for it. So there is a really, really good handout also in that AAFP 2016 guidelines packet that is titled Myths and Realities of Hyperthyroidism Treatment. I really want for every single person to go read this. And again, we're going to go over more information in our companion episode about this. But 
there are really good myths and rebuttals to those myths here. And some of these are new in the past decade. Some of the conventional ideas that we've had about managing hyperthyroidism that I was even taught in school are on here as (laughs) myths. One of them in particular, like, let's just give an example. Maintaining a total T4 slightly above the reference interval will help patients with comorbidities like kidney disease. We used to think that that was a good idea. It Mm. is not. So we want to go into this more in depth in in our snack-sized episode, which uh, I'd love for everybody to join us for. But if you don't have time, you can't, don't leave this episode without at least going and downloading those those hyperthyroidism guidelines, printing a copy, giving it to the people at your office, making sure that they're up on their hyperthyroidism knowledge because it's always a changing landscape out mm. there. I got my information from two different places. Uh, one is uh, Hyperthyroidism in Animals by Mark E. Peterson, D-V-M-D-A-C-V-I-M. Uh, this was from July 2019. So we'll provide a yep. link to that website in uh-huh. the show notes. And yep. the other one was, of course, the 2016 AAFP guidelines for management of feline hyperthyroidism. Authors being Hazel C. Carney, Cynthia R. Ward, and Stephen J. Bailey. And I had a couple of references as well. One is the Diagnosis and Management of Feline Hyperthyroidism, Current Perspectives, which was published in the journal Veterinary Medicine Research and Reports in March 2014. And the main author was Dr. Veska and several other colleagues. And I will place a link in the show notes for this as well. And finally, I got a lot of information from VIN, the Veterinary Information Network. So one of those resources on VIN that uh, I found really helpful was the Encyclopedia of Diseases Entry for Hyperthyroidism. And that's um, written by Drs. Carrie Rothrock and Linda Shell. And additionally, the notes from a combined AAFP and VIN rounds, and it is called Busting the Myths about Feline Hyperthyroidism, Information from the 2016 AAFP Guidelines for the Management of Feline Hyperthyroidism. So this is a rounds posted on VIN about those 2016 um, guidelines. So if you're like, ugh, I don't really, my jam is not really reading a long document. (laughs) Well, you can click through a PowerPoint presentation if you log on to VIN, <laughs> boom, all set. And that one, uh, those rounds were put together by uh, Dr. Hazel Carney. So everybody check out those resources. JJ, what's the best thing that's happened to you this week? Uh, yesterday officially started a vacation for a week. That's awesome. Enjoy your time off, girl. I will. You? Um. Okay, my best thing... This is going to sound negative, but it's not. It's a positive (laughs) thing. One of the places that I work introduced me to... Okay, so you know... So there are dogs that communicate with their owners by pressing these Mm -hmm. buttons that say words. Yep. Okay. I had only ever seen it with dogs. Mm -hmm. But there's a cat. So there's someone who has trained their cat to do this. (laughs) And I was like, no way. (laughs) And they're like, way. So I uh, went to the Instagram... Uh, which I'll need to look up here in just a minute. But so I went to the Instagram and just clicked on one of the videos at random and it's her, uh, it's the cat running over and she's like, did you mean to press the food button or did you mean to press the pets button? And she's like trying to get clarification from the cat. Do you want food or want pets? And the cat like stares at her for a minute and goes over to a third button and presses it and the button goes <laughs> mad. And the cat's like staring up at her and she's like, 
I know you're mad. Which one do you want? And the cat's like, mad, mad, mad. <laughs> and I was just like, this is my spirit animal, this cat. And so then I just, I mean, it was so funny. I watched it <laughs> over and over again. It was so funny. Um, so I've decided that I'm going to order myself a mad yes. button and just press it like <laughs> mad, 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 mad. I would also like a food button. <laughs> food, snacks, pets, mad. I mean, really, in a way, wouldn't it be better if people communicated yeah. through buttons? That is just very specific. <laughs> Imagine if you could communicate you're upset with something yeah. that efficiently. You don't have to do passive aggressive weirdness. You don't have to like read body language. You know, you walk over, you push the button and you're just like <laughs> mad, mad. Then, yep. it, right? Like, okay, well, what do you need if you're mad? Like, let's go, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I saw that. And I love anyway. like, you know, she'd ask the cat, well, which one do you want? And the cat would stare at him and you see that tail flicking, that classic, this cat yeah. is trying to make a decision. And then it would be like, you know what? Mm-hmm. Fuck this. Mad. <laughs> yeah, it would. It just sat there. And it was like, it would even like look at his foot like, is this button <laughs> not, not working? And then look back up and be like, mad, <laughs> mad, mad. <laughs> <laughs> like, we get it. You're mad. We oh, understand no, it's like The mad. dog's like, but anyway. play, <laughs> pets, <laughs> food, outside. Yeah, all... the dog is like, love you, mom. Mad. And the cat's like, you. That's the equivalent of the tiny bird finger thing. <laughs> absolutely anyway so um at that clinic then for the rest of the day if something was like uh, upsetting we would be like <laughs> mad you know like it would be like this owner this owner called again about this result that we don't have <laughs> mad you know <laughs> and when i got home and carl was like i didn't make dinner i was like <laughs> mad <laughs> you know this is actually really effective i like it um (laughs) okay i need that button okay guys well if you have stories for us they could be clinical cases they could be funny uh client stories they could be uh hero (laughs) pets send us all your hero pet stories we'll give Mm -hmm. them all medals be sure to reach out and our email address is introvetspodcast at gmail.com and also we're on social media on instagram and facebook and we'll see you next time bye